Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. And in this episode, we are speaking with Professor Min Ye, an author and an associate professor of international relations at the Frederick S. Pardee School of Global Studies at Boston University. Her expertise includes Chinese political economy, China and India comparison, East Asian international relations and globalization with focuses on transnational immigration and foreign investment. We deep dive into a wide exploration of China's outbound foreign direct investment, the difference between China's bilateral and multilateral free trade agreements, the future of the Belt and Road Initiative, and Professor Yu's take on the U.S.-China relations with the new Biden administration, and bringing it all together in a positive fashion towards the end, looking at the different opportunities for the U.S. to collaborate together with China moving forward. Enjoy. I think many people dismiss Biden's change in style from Trump administration as being insignificant. And I disagree. Uh, in dealings with China, style matters hugely. I feel like Americans suddenly forgot that it's about face and relationship. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Minya, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. So maybe let's start with a quick introduction of yourself and the work that you're focusing on. Okay, so uh, I uh, am an expert in uh, Chinese and Asian political economy. Uh, so I uh, work on the subjects that are in the intersections between domestic politics and the global politics and economics and security. So my um, main publications are, 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 are in three books. And so the first one uh, is Making Northeast Asia, a 2010 book, and looks at domestic politics, original integration in Asia. And uh, uh, the second book is 2014, uh, Cambridge University Press uh, book, Diasporas and Foreign Direct Investment in China and, uh, and India. And so the last the recent book, hopefully it's not the last book. <laughs> the recent book is uh, uh, Belt, Road and Beyond, uh, State Mobilized Globalization in China uh, from 1998 to 2018 uh, from the Cambridge University Press. So again, I focus on Asia, globalization, China and India. That's an amazing and, and, and well done on that description of, of what you do. You must have said that before. Uh, how hard is it? Given the topics that you're talking about, because those things are changing every day. So let me add like that first book that you wrote, 2010, The Making of Northeast Asia. How long was that relevant? 
And that book actually, uh, I got most loyalty from. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason, of course, was uh, uh, I cover regionalism and for uh, uh, people who work continue to work on regionalism and they will relate to that book uh, and regionalism has changed a lot so in my uh, way as a scholar is to find a conceptual framework that's that state right? so for asian regionalism uh because I understand that domestic politics in Asia typically shape their, their regional economic policies. And so I created this framework called critical juncture. And so when crises occur, then domestic leadership and policy networks in, uh, interact across country. And then that leads to a uh, new institution uh, building in the region. So that structure uh, is still relevant, although the Chiang Mai initiative may have evolved and the ASEAN plus three has changed and East, East Asia summit is almost dormant. But now we have RCEP, right? So the regional comprehensive uh, economic cooperation. And that again is in line with this regionalism. And same thing with uh, China and India book. Uh, I look at the diasporas. Um, so how external uh, agents, uh, uh, co-ethnic external agents and investors, they shape domestic deliberation of policies toward FDI uh, in China and in India. So by going through their decade of uh, policy change toward FDI and how the uh, co-ethnic uh, agents or investors play a part, that kind of dynamic still uh, go on. And with BRI, right, BRI is only seven years old, but uh, the West uh, has a uh, experienced the waves of debates and the literature on it. That's because they always look at the BRI as, as one thing. Uh, and, and yet it's not one thing, uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's integrated by China's domestic politics, right? So this is how I approach BRI and I find the domestic actors and uh, the dynamics of policy change and policy process uh, apply to BRI, but also apply to previous grant strategies like Western Development Program and the China Goes Global uh, Strategy. Right? So that really the phenomena drives BRI is a phenomena that has driven China's economic globalization from since 1998. So, so I, I think that kind of, you know, as a scholar, you always want to have a show of life. Uh, but when, when, when you can uh, carry uh, explanation that can help us understand new changes and uh, new phenomena, that, that, that's you, how you get around. You know? Because things do change very quickly. Anything that's on China, like one day it's a hot topic, the second day it's already overstudied. I think it's important to understand how far back some policies or even, you know, cultural uh, diagrams go, because if we want to say this is what's going on and where is it going to go, really the best chance we have is to really extrapolate the past until now and that path into the future. And obviously, the farther back we can go to be able to make that extrapolation and to then be able to start to lay out some assumptions 
the farther back we can go, the better. Yeah, but I think the Chinese, uh, if we think about China and globalization or the Chinese state capitalism, that does have changed. Even just in the reform era, I, I think from the 1980s to 1990s, um, the they, they are more into building up the structure of capitalism, right? Um, the kinds of bureaucracy were not there, the kinds of human capital, technocrats, and policy knowledge expertise were not there. Uh, so, so the the post-1998 development, that actually is different from the previous 20 years. That's, uh, uh, but then uh, after uh, 1998, the types of state capitalism structure and the relationship of the uh, leadership, the bureaucracy, and uh, the state-owned companies and local governments, these institutions, these domestic institutions that were set, so you kind of can observe how they operate in the last 20 years. And that, I think, will continue for some time. Let's start talking a little bit about the foreign direct investment uh, aspect and China's outbound foreign direct investment particularly. How has it evolved over the past 10 years what is the current status? I again see China as an economy in the world in Asia. So China is a late comer economy in Asia. So China missed the East Asian miracle uh, from the 1950s to 1970s. So when China opened uh, uh, in uh, the late 1970s, and starting the 1980s, it embraced FDI. And that's very unusual from other East Asian countries. That's because China had to leapfrog its uh, technology uh, manufacturing skills and uh, had to join very rapidly in the in the regional production network and to make exports quickly to earn foreign exchange, right? So, but, but the, the, the Chinese opening to FDI, so that's why the China's joining globalization actually changed the global trends and the discourse on FDI. Right? So China, but then um, when China uh, uh, joined the WTO and when its domestic manufacturing foundations uh, uh, were kind of uh, laid and then it's still lagging behind on the outbound investment. So in short, for very long time, uh, China prioritized inbound FDI, but restricted outbound FDI. So from 2001 to 2008, even when China joined the World Trade Organization and China increased outbound FDI, but those outbound FDI was, number one, much smaller than the inbound FDI. The trend is is, is going the opposite way. And uh, uh, they also mainly serve China's goal to uh, upgrade domestic manufacturing, to upgrade exports. And so, it, it's with, so it's to acquire resources, to acquire technology, and to uh, acquire uh, logistic support, helping China export. So the real change in its outbound investments or capital uh, starts in 2008, and when the uh, global financial crisis occurred, and uh, the trouble. 
Western capital left lots of holes for China to fill. But this time, the Chinese uh, going out capital was less FDI, but uh, uh, financing, you know, state-led financing, so acquisition of resources, uh, infrastructure, and development financing launched by China's policy banks. Those, I think, it kind of build uh, the China's presence uh, overseas, but uh, but it's also again serving domestic market uh, uh, than than uh, international business needs, and when. Uh, BRI was launched, uh, and then China's uh, policy restricting outbound investment loosened. And so these policies typically, so again, China's policy had this inherent imperative to control and not let money go out. Uh, but when you had the BRI uh, and had this crisis, then the money was uh, loosened to go out. And so in 2014, this is the first year that China's outbound investment uh, was uh, larger than inbound investment. So China became a net investor. Um, and they, we saw rapid growth from 2014 to 2017. But then we realized that uh, when Chinese money went out uh, uh, too much, then external backlash uh, was also very clear. On the other hand, as we go back to the Beijing's thinking, right, they were very careful on money outflow. So they, they also tightened the control of outbound uh, flows. So uh, starting 2018, we began to see the decline and then stagnation of outbound uh, FDI. Um, uh, but but the, 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 the level that is stagnate is much higher than 2014. So, so we can say China is a net investor, and uh, not as big as we would like to see. But, but it, it's it's an, it's now an investor, and this trend will continue. Yeah, there's a couple of questions that uh, I was going to ask that I think we actually got to a little bit there. One of them was, you know, talking about outbound FDI. Is it going to be used? Is it used for political reasons primarily or economic reasons? I think you kind of alluded to the fact that it is probably the second. It's the latter. It is much more for economic reasons. So would you, you know, just to, to comment, you know, much more economic than political? Yeah, I, I uh, uh, so I think uh, the uh, political uh, driver was uh, blown out of uh, proportion. And that's uh, uh, even when the political thinking was behind the strategic policy at very high level. But when, once the policy got into implementation, it's the uh, uh, investor's decision, right? Either they are state-owned companies or private companies. And even state-owned companies, they operate under a profit and safety of the assets condition. And so they, um, and so from that point of view, uh, the investors, they are interested how much return how safe the investment are. So from the BRI process, if we look at the project level uh, calculations, then it, it, the, the commercial calculations by investors are by far the most salient. And uh, what the investors uh, in my interview, for example, they say, you know, we are 
is how much return this investment return like 20% outside China. If they do it inside China, then that's less than 10%. Then their choice is try to expand international business and making higher earning. And when that calculation didn't work, they stay at home. Right? So I have uh, another journal article, for example, we find for uh, for small scaled uh, investors. And when they think about investing abroad or locate, uh, staying locally, and they stay locally because investing abroad appears to be less uh, effective and with less return than staying locally. We can't help when we're talking about outbound FDI to really dovetail into the Belt and Road Initiative, the, the BRI. But I'm going to hold off on that for just a sec. And I want to talk a little bit about, I want to ask you first, just real quick, where is outbound FDI going to head over the next, even just five years? Yeah, so uh, under the uh, BRI and in the last uh, five years, uh, the top 10 destinations of China's outbound uh, FDI uh, Seven of them uh, are located in Southeast Asia. Right? So Singapore is the top, and then also Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia. There's a traditional uh, investor place for China. And then the, the other three, so Russia, Kazakhstan, and uh, um and, and, and there's one more in Central Asia. Uh, uh, but, but it's very clear, you know, it, it, it will be these traditional heavy trading places with China. But I think the next five to 10 years may change because just in last year, uh, China uh, had uh, a lot of rethinking uh, when other countries are fighting COVID. And one of the rethinking is to uh, um, rearrange uh, supply chains. And this, again, is a reactive, but also proactive adjustment that they have to do. And then because of the, the, the COVID crisis, but also because of U.S.-China relations deteriorating. Right? So supply chains are being revamped. I haven't seen the, the, the specific maps. Perhaps China hasn't drawn a specific map, but the principle is clear. You know, it's creating more resilient and repetitive, smaller supply chains. So I think these investments will 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 try to facilitate uh, that that. And yeah, and the uh, industrial planning that China is is doing the national the five year plan. The next stage, I think, the digital economy, health economy, uh, is uh, is emphasized, and the ecological economy are, are three really emphasized areas. I can and given that I do believe China's outbound investment is is a contingent on the domestic economic priorities. So I think those are the areas we'll see more change. I know that, uh, like you said, it's, some of it is reactive and some of it, some of it is proactive uh, because, you know, I, I think what we're seeing in the early days from the Biden administration is that even in their call with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau here in Canada, talking about and talking heavily about the uh, reorganization of those supply chains and manufacturing, uh, even from the U.S. side. And I think 
given how China has uh, been such an integral part to global supply chain, any other country of significance who is talking about a reorganization of their supply chain, China has to take notice and understand and try to anticipate what the impact is going to be for them back home. Yeah, that's right. So the the digital, the logistics, and then supply chain, and this actually, I think, will will, will go together. Uh, but of course, all China policy will be implemented in a very fragmented way. So I, I don't think we'll see a joint board and telling us where it's going. But uh, this might be some areas that we can see. Yeah. You know. So let's switch gears a little bit. We're going to come back to the BRI uh, because I think that's one of the more fascinating things we want to get to. But first, I want to talk to you a little bit about China and the recent uh, free trade agreement. Is there any difference between their approach in in bilateral versus multilateral agreements? Yeah, so I think uh, 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 the Chinese globalization, I call it, it's a, it's very uh, a Chinese elite thinking and the policy establishments do have strong uh, conviction in globalization, but their perspective globalization is very pragmatic. So it doesn't really uh, prioritize one way over the other. Um, The uh, bilateral, minilateral, regional, global uh, are are, are always pursued. Um, But then which way will be more salient? And that depends on China's internal readiness and the external environment. So I'll use the RCEP as an example. Uh, so this uh, November 2020 signed uh, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. And this one was uh, uh, proposed by uh, ASEAN, uh, Association of Southeast Asian Countries, in 2011. And China was actively involved, but it was not enthusiastically pursued. Uh, and uh, that's because China that having the multilateral agreements with ASEM in the driver's seat was uh, acceptable, but not very passionate about. Uh, and then so when uh, pursued the, the Belt Road Initiative and uh, it, it, it's uh, most progress was achieved in Southeast Asia. Right? So when they built this separate China-led regional uh, networks and, 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 and connections, and they feel the ASEAN's centrality role in, in the ASEP was already offset. So it's less um, uh, this, this in, uh, in incentivizing. Uh, and then the other condition is U.S.-China uh, uh, hostility. Right? So uh, the, the, the U.S. Uh, uh, hostility toward China really pushes China think more pragmatically how they can uh, change the environment of this great power competition, how they can further bound ASEAN uh, with China's economy so that uh, it creates a, a constraint on this bilateral great power conflict. I think that also applies to the China's um, uh, uh, negotiation with Europe, uh, which was signed in, in December 2020. How on the other side are partners, uh, like partner, how are partner nations maybe changing their approach uh, to China maybe over the past few years? 
maybe due to China stepping up and being a little bit more assertive? Yeah, so China is uh, certainly more assertive, uh, but it didn't work, right? So, so you ha- you have to separate China's assertive uh, rhetoric uh, that is uh, launched by these uh, propaganda people. And so they call Wai Xuan, right? So Wai Xuan uh, tends to be uh, uh, it, it, it speaks to uh, the 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 more nationalist wing inside the country, right? And also to show that we have our voices too. Right? So. But then you look at the more uh, systematic policy level actions like China's trade relations or investment projects and uh, and the projects in the BRI or negotiation with BRI. Those were uh, continued by pre-existing business networks and uh, I think uh, bureaucracy networks uh, and, and a think tank uh, involvement. So that's a separate issue. Um, but the the uh, the bureaucracy, of course, realized uh, these uh, hawkish voices were counterproductive. Right? And so as China's uh, economic presence in ASEAN uh, increases, they also face a lot of backlash. And right? so Indonesia uh, would be uh, uh, open arm at one point and then then, uh, then quite a skeptical on another. Uh, but I think that China's uh, have dealt with uh, East Asian countries for so long. So this this dichotomy, this uh, uh, sometimes close, sometimes more distant, this phenomena is 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 a pretty much a normalcy for them. Bottom line is uh, the uh, Southeast Asian countries, including Vietnam uh, uh, and Philippines, uh, do not want to make a choice. And they all want to be uh, uh, more uh, integrated with Chinese economy, but not in the political economic sense, right? So they want to uh, uh, have stable and beneficial economic relationships and without being forced to accept the, the, the power from China. So that's why you can see them try to play this hedging. Hedging is not just a diplomatically close to both, but also hedging means security on one side, economy on the other, like uh, building relationship with these people, um, but also building relationship with other uh, groups in, in, in China. Right? So, so hedging has been done uh, quite systematically uh, in, East, in Southeast Asian countries. Let's turn our attention to the Belt and Road Initiative now. Let's talk a little bit about, and if you want to give some background color a little bit on the Belt and Road Initiative to help answer maybe what is the future. I know that you talked a little bit about some of the countries that they're going to focus on, um, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on uh, why or why not Africa, but what is the future of the BRI? Uh, I do uh, like life cycle analysis of the BRI, right? So, so I know that when... BRI, uh, before BRI's launch, uh, and I was like doing uh, research uh, in, in Beijing uh, on, the, on, on China's responses to TPP and how China would uh, accept or not accept the RCEP. And so I was right in Beijing and uh, I, I, I know how imperialized 
or paralyzed that these uh, uh, think tank policy people felt uh, because they, 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 they saw RCEP not as very attractive, uh, but TPP was uh, so aggressive, right? Uh, and they had, they, they, uh, they just uh, feel uh, what they could do. Uh, and so I, I see the, and then the, the, the bigger problem, of course, was China's economic overcapacity. Right, so uh, economic overcapacity, and the technocrats were uh, arguing for uh, uh, investing overseas and expanding overseas market, but that involves uh, spending Chinese money, right? Uh, and then uh, you uh, you lived in China before the Chinese um, uh, public actually have quite aggressive ownership sense over Chinese money, right? So they say, how why do you spend money uh, in in other the countries uh, to benefit the state or the company, right? And um, you should spend in our own schools, our own kids, our poor regions. And so, so basically, the I observe, so in, as I document in the book, is when China faced this geostrategic uh, pressure, the diplomatic problem and economic problems. And the, uh, the bureaucracies and the policy experts had proposals, but none of these proposals could become a national policy that would be accepted by, uh, the, the other bureaucracies or society. And um, so when the leader made these two very, uh, uh short and, uh, unclear announcements uh, on the uh, Silk Road economic belt and the maritime Silk Road. Um, the, the bureaucracies, the policy networks just uh, seized the opportunity and they saw that the BRI could address their problems. So that's why we begin to see the BRI would be promoted by different people and justified with different motivations. And I feel like the, 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 the West, uh, understanding of it uh, has been, uh, uh, first it was slower. You know, they didn't see the kind of uh, debates uh, going on in China. And um, so they started by, uh, I call it dismissal, and because they, 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 they felt that oh, BRI was so hollow. You don't see concrete uh, projects. And then they, the, in 2017, when the first summit was held, and, uh, and the Chinese leadership now gained all government consensus and all society support of the BRI, and so the the, the leadership uh, had. Uh, um, I think the Chinese leadership also feel the moment was right, right? So it was uh, quite. Uh, um, High profile called this is a project of the century, and then announcing uh, uh, large sum investment money, uh, like a trillion dollar in total of investment. Uh, so then the uh, external uh, views were this: this is a major grand strategy to dominate to achieve the China dream, right? uh, and, and then that of course was was not. Uh, correct, because once you go beyond these headline numbers and the the geostrategic rhetoric, we'll find on the ground uh, the the state uh, investors or the 
the local governments or private business, uh, they they expanded and they expanded their interest in investing overseas. Uh, but the the rationale is still very much uh, uh, whether they make money and, uh, uh, and and whether this project makes commercial sense. And uh, and uh, again, it's also uh, the because it's so myopically uh, structured in commercial sense and yet uh, uh, legitimized by the strategic rhetoric at the top. So we kind of see this backlash from both politics and from the ground uh, uh, economic uh, uh, out, fallout. Um, so I think now uh, in my um, conversation with, uh, with a, a strategist in this country, uh, I feel like people are going back to being dismissive, right? So the BRI is actually not the real challenge to our power, right? So I say, well, maybe now, actually, the, uh, the, the Chinese, after seven years of trial and error, uh, and they begin to uh, have a clearer uh, idea what they can accomplish and what they cannot accomplish in the BRI. So I, I do see uh, uh, a sharper focus and uh, clearer content. Right? So they uh, perhaps are becoming uh, risk more, much risk consciousness now and uh, try to work with recipient governments more, society more, uh, and try to create uh, less political and social impact, uh, and also um, uh, avoid large-scale infrastructure, uh, but uh, do smaller uh, uh, infrastructure, and particularly with digital infrastructure at the core, uh, and, and by also creating uh, uh, different institutional mechanisms uh, in the in the BRI uh, implementation, um, and trying to make it more accessible acceptable uh, but if 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 bi does go this way and is that more challenging or less challenging you perhaps don't see as much economic footprint but that actually is going to be more like a strategy than before um, so 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 that's i uh, recently won my um uh, uh, strategies friends, you know, just as you guys dismiss it, maybe it's the time we see a new, more robust BRI, less costly, but perhaps more influential for China. Let's change gears here for the for the last uh, the last topic, which is the U.S.-China relations. So, do you see the relationship with China between China and the U.S. changing significantly under this new Biden administration? Yeah, so this is a very good question, uh, and uh, and I I think many people uh, dismiss uh, Biden's change in style uh, from Trump administration as being insignificant, and I disagree. Uh, in dealings with China, style matters hugely. I feel like Americans suddenly forgot that. It's about face and relationship when you work with, with with China. It's such a good point, by the way. That is such such a good point. Yeah, because it's like uh, uh, in the last few years, in particular in 
2020. It was so awful, and it was just uh, so awful uh, uh, because the administration style uh, targeting at uh, China Chinese people, and uh, it's it's just uh, stopping all the normal uh, exchange, dialogue, and respect. Right, uh, and and so so Biden's coming to power, even just uh, not changing any substantial policy, but by uh, appearing uh, normal and, and nicer. And we already see that the Chinese were sending uh, all kinds of uh, pragmatic calls for um, for uh, cooperation, right? And they didn't say that you should change this or change that, uh, but they say we should uh, so you walk toward each other. And it's it's just in the in the last few weeks, the Chinese uh, policy specialists and the, the the government's diplomats held many uh, conversations internally and with the United States by sending all these positive uh, messages uh, and, and and asking for multilateral cooperation, asking for bilateral uh, dialogues, and even when uh, the Biden administration also criticize uh, on issues on Xinjiang or Taiwan, Hong Kong, and uh, uh, same uh, continuity in the technology, security, and, and the recent uh, overview of the supply chains, right? And, and the Chinese response was not like hawkish. Uh, uh, they, just, they, they, they repeated that domestic politics are our red line, you know, don't interfere in our Xinjiang, don't interfere in our Hong Kong affairs, right? And these are lasting differences, so they just repeat their, their stances. Uh, and uh, with uh, uh, Biden's um, uh, uh, technology security continuity, this again continuing from the previous uh, administration, the Chinese is just uh, doing their own uh, uh, security, uh, technology security oversight or overview. Uh, and then with the uh, supply chain, they, their response is uh, uh, decoupling will not work. Uh, but as I said, China is already, uh, has already been planning on supply chain reorientation and making it more resilient and uh, 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 more uh, crisis uh, uh, shock uh, uh, proof. Right? And so, so they say, that, so they are, they are saying Biden's work may not uh, uh, may not work, but it's not like taking to the to the sense of being hostile. Uh, and and then on the other hand, uh, I do see them, uh, the two countries and uh, broader uh, global uh, players, uh, to have dialogues in uh, public health as we are such so deeply in the crisis and uh, climate uh, will, will be one and technology security and setting uh, some kind of normal, uh, accountable, transparent rules for business and, and, and cultural uh, exchange. I, I think that those areas uh, 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 can, can, will be very welcome by, uh, by, by both, both countries. So again, I, I do believe style change doesn't matter. Style change matters a huge, a huge amount. 100%. I couldn't agree with you more. Even from all my time in China, I know this to be 100% true. Even if the Biden administration fundamentally, like from, from a policy perspective, didn't change anything, just a difference in tone, a show of respect and treating each other like 
you know, good people, a respectful communication, a good tone, that can change everything. And if that does change, as we hope that it does, where do you think, just to close out this entire podcast, where do you think the opportunities to then collaborate economically between China and the U.S., where do those lie? Yeah, I think the uh, the uh, the areas of cooperation are, are quite uh, clear, right? So climate, uh, health, uh, energy, uh, technology, and uh, business, uh, non-essential business operations. Uh, but I, I, I feel that uh, the uh, Biden administration so far, because it's so busy uh, with uh, domestic uh, issues, uh, the, the U.S. might be quite slow in catching up. Uh, and then China is doing it already. And perhaps China and its Asian neighbors are doing uh, a lot of those uh, already. Uh, Europe may be part of it, uh, but the U.S. Uh, perhaps can catch up when, when, when lots of these uh, global initiatives or the global corporations are being discussed. For example, the debt issue. And so once the now it's that to overcome the pandemic, how you can distribute vaccine as effectively, as globally as possible. Right? That task is already very gigantic. But once that's done, it's global reconstruction. It's the debt issue. So many of the countries are, 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 are so overwhelmed with debt. And, and uh, I don't know. Uh, without the U.S. active participation, uh, whether any of those global discussions can be conducted. One thing is I feel China doesn't want to lead um, because um, it's uh, it, it feel it, it, it's not ready, um, uh, but it, 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 it will be very cooperative in the, in the discussion. Uh, and the U.S. needs to be lead, leading, um, but the U.S. now it's uh, it's just uh, I, I feel it has too too much going on in Washington. So hopefully, the rest of the world <laughs> uh, do more. Yeah, the Biden administration was left with uh, a bit of a hot mess to try to clean up domestically, and I think that's going to be the focus for the first year is to try to right that ship uh, and uh, repair some of the damage before starting to look over. So um, I think the rest of the world has a little bit more time to uh, prepare for. Uh, the future relationship with the U.S., including the U.S.-China relations. Uh, Professor Minya, thank you very much for this. Uh, I, can't, I can't tell you how much of a pleasure this was. Uh, you have incredible insights. Where can people after this podcast go to find more from you and potentially purchase your book? You can uh, Google my name and you'll find my uh, uh, professional, uh, my institutional website. And there it, it lists uh, uh, the articles, like I have an article uh, on uh, uh, China, uh, BRI after COVID in Asia policy. And I have an article on US-China uh, competition in the last 10 years uh, in the Journal of War and Peace Studies. Uh, and I have another forthcoming article in the Washington Quarterly. Uh, and these were, are all available on my institutional website. I also have a profile on ResearchGate. Um, so ResearchGate is a free uh, 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 scholarly sharing website and most of the materials I post there are uh, free. And uh, my uh, two books, the Cambridge University uh, books are uh, what, what they call Cambridge Core. So all uh, 
university libraries, most of university libraries around the world have subscription to Cambridge University course, so they can download the, the books uh, chapter by chapter free. Great, great option for students as well. There, yeah. That's amazing. Professor Yu, thank you again so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time. Okay, well, thanks. It's my pleasure. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.